Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Everybody loves a mystery, and today on the show we are talking about two of the biggest mysteries that are facing the U.S. Men's National Team World Cup roster right now. One of which is regarding the midfield, specifically the number eight position, specifically, specifically the fourth number eight behind Eunice Musa, Weston McKinney, and Luca De La Torre. Who's going to fill in that fourth number eight midfielder void and I've got four midfielders who I think may fit the bill and and we're definitely going to talk about it but before we do that let's talk about probably the biggest mystery in all of U.S. men's soccerdom right now and that is What's going on with John Brooks? The U.S. men's national team will be heading to the 2022 World Cup in Qatar with one of its deepest and most talented squads ever. But there is a big issue with this squad that has a lot of people concerned, and that's youth and inexperience. And with that youth and inexperience comes a lot of head scratching surrounding the omission to one of the few players in the pool that actually does have World Cup experience, and that is defender John Brooks. Coming into World Cup qualifying, John Brooks was expected to take a massive role as one of the leaders of this squad and and to just be a a rock in defense throughout World Cup qualifying. That proved not to be the case. John Brooks took part in the first window of World Cup qualifying and that was it. John Brooks' departure from the national team has had a lot of folks wondering what in the world is going on here. Today we're going to take a deep dive into the John Brooks situation and kind of see if we can figure out what are these form issues that Greg Berhalter is referring to? How does John Brooks fit into this national team and is he going to be a part of this team going forward? All that and more on this episode of the Yank Report. What's up? My name is Sam. This is the Yank Report, the show where we talk about the U.S. men's national team. If you're into that kind of thing, please hit the subscribe button. We do appreciate it. Now, before we leap headfirst into John Brooks, let's take a moment to hear a word from today's sponsor. Football might be over, but MLS is coming back and Champions League and European soccer are in full swing. From all the latest odds, totals, player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land, Bet Online is the number one spot for all your sports betting needs. Head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive 50% off your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use promo code BELIEVE to get started. And it's not just basketball. BetOnline is your source for hockey, boxing, and UFC odds, right to the Olympic coverage, from sports right down to your favorite Vegas casino games. BetOnline is your number one online wagering destination. BetOnline, the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports and play all your favorite games. BetOnline, where the game starts. So let's start out with a little bit of background information on John. John Brooks is a German-American center back. He was born in Berlin, Germany. His dad was an American serviceman from Chicago, Illinois. John actually has a tattoo of Chicago and Berlin on both of his elbows. John made his international debut for the U.S. men's national team in 2013 in a game against Bosnia and Herzegovina. It's the game I always remember as the Josie Altidore hat trick game, but it was a big deal for the U.S. men's national team at the time because John Brooks was thought of as a player who could potentially be a world-class center back, one of the best players that America had ever had playing for them up to that point. Uh, So it was a huge deal. John later went on to play in the 2014 World Cup, which he is famously remembered uh, for coming on as a substitute and scoring the game-winning goal in a 2-1 victory over Ghana. It was a header on a corner kick, and it was absolutely unbelievable. John later solidified himself as one of the best center backs in the history of the U.S. men's national team in the 2016 Copa America Centenario, a tournament that took place in the United States uh, where John was just an absolute beast. And he was later named to the FIFA team of the tournament. Now, what's John actually like as a player? Well, 
if you talk about John Brooks, you got to talk about his passing. He is, I think, the best passer in the U.S. men's national team pool. That's not just of the center backs. That's all players included. Uh, his long passing, particularly his long diagonals, are just absolutely unmatched within the U.S. men's national team player pool. And if you watch him for his club team, Wolfsburg, his top priority is pinging balls all over the field. We have no other player that can match his, his range of passing, uh, especially from the center back position. And nowhere was John's passing ability more evident than in the semifinal of the Nations League whenever the U.S. faced Honduras. In the closing moments of that game, John pinged the pass uh, over to Weston McKinney, who headed it back across to uh, Jordan Peefock to win that game. Uh, it, it was a pass that, you know, the U.S. had been struggling for the entire game to just create any chances at all, and John found that moment, and it was his class that, that broke it open and allowed the U.S. to move on to the finals. That being said, John is not a perfect player, and he does have some weaknesses, and I think his weaknesses are his most mobility and his defending in open spaces. He's not very good whenever he is uh, isolated one-on-one, on one, especially against faster players. In order to mitigate those weaknesses, John's club team, Wolfsburg, often deploys in a three-man back line, and John is the left player in the three-man back line. So if John is aggressive and, and, and loses a one-on-one -on -one battle upfield, he'll often have players behind him uh, that can protect him uh, for his lack of mobility and his, his, uh, his inability to recover. With the U.S. Westman's national team, however, this is not always the case, and we saw this pretty early on. Uh, as far back as the game against Switzerland in the summer, uh, the U.S. Men's national team was getting exposed uh, numerous times with their high back line. Uh, John Brooks was just getting passed by. This happened in that game. This happened in the game against Jamaica, uh, and it was very concerning. It even happened in the Nations League game against Honduras. It was to the point that fans were kind of beating down the door of Greg Berhalter, demanding better transition defense. Now, heading into the Gold Cup, a lot of those issues went away. If you remember in the Gold Cup, the U.S. won the Gold Cup based on their defense and on some stellar goalkeeping from Matt Turner. One of the standout players that emerged from the Gold Cup was Miles Robinson. Miles Robinson is a player with tremendous athletic ability, tremendous range, and tremendous defending one-on-one. -on -one. When the U.S. backline did get stretched, it never seemed to be an issue because Miles Robinson had the ability to recover and shut down any attacks that might have developed. Whenever Miles Robinson was later paired with Walker Zimmerman, their combined athleticism and their dominance over the air uh, really proved to be a shutdown defense for the U.S. men's national team. With Miles Robinson's player profile, his speed, his mobility, and the return of Tyler Adams, it really felt like a lot of the issues with John Brooks were going to get mitigated by the athleticism of those two players. Miles Robinson seemed like the perfect partner for John Brooks heading into World Cup qualifiers. But it didn't exactly play out that way. John's first start of World Cup qualifying came in the U.S.'s second game of the first window against Canada. And in this game, John had a pretty high-profile mistake that led to Canada's goal. Uh, it was a play where John got caught upfield and his inability to recover in time really showed up. Now, this, this goal wasn't 100% on John Brooks, but you could see in this goal, in, in this sequence, uh, that John's lack of mobility was going to be an issue there. In the very next game, the U.S. men's national team traveled to Honduras, and once again, John Brooks started. This time, it was a th in a three-man back line, and it was probably the worst coaching of Greg Berhalter throughout all of World Cup qualifying. Uh, the U.S. looked terrible in that formation, uh, and it was a, a terrible first half. But once again, there was a goal that was created, uh, and once again, John Brooks got caught upfield, was unable to recover in time, uh, and, and his man ended up scoring that goal. Uh, once again, this goal is not 100% on John Brooks. There was other players and other blame to go around. But once again, we see John Brooks getting caught up uh, and, and not being able to recover, and his lack of mobility 
ability and, and his defending in space uh, are once again put on front street and, and result in a goal for the U.S. John Brooks would end up getting pulled at halftime in this game whenever the U.S. would switch back to their traditional 4-3-3, uh, and the U.S. would eventually come back. But this game would end up being John Brooks's last game in World Cup qualifying. With John Brooks out of the picture, the center back pairing of Walker Zimmerman and Miles Robinson began to emerge as a pretty strong one for the U.S. men's national team. The pair featured some athleticism, some incredible aerial ability, and just the togetherness that allowed the U.S. to become one of the stronger defenses in all of CONCACAF throughout World Cup qualifying. Looking back at some of John Brooks's high-profile mistakes that ended up leading to goals uh, against the U.S., and comparing the same way that Walker Zimmerman and Miles Robinson handled those same situations, it's pretty clear that Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman just they they fit better and they work better in that high-line, high-pressure defense uh, that the U.S. Men's National Team has been playing under Greg Berhalter. Now, I know that that would lead a lot of people to say that isn't it the coach's job to fit the system around the players to make the system work uh, to get the best players involved and I would say yes but I would also say considering the 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 roster for the U.S. Men's National Team considering the amount of players who thrive in a, in a high pace high transition high press game it makes a lot of sense for the U.S. to tailor their system around these players and that's going to leave some people out there are other players in this pool who are better suited for you know sitting back and, and, and possessing the ball and looking for long-range passes who just don't seem to really fit as well in this particular system that being said, John Brooks's experience and his passing ability would absolutely make him an asset for this national team, which has led a lot of people to wonder, is Greg Berhalter ever going to call John Brooks back to the national team? When asked that very question, Greg issued this statement. He said, I hate to get detailed about this regarding an individual player, but whenever you look at the window in October, he had an injury. In November and January, we weren't happy with his club form. Now he's back playing, and now it becomes about what our game plan is for this window. And there's some details in his game that I talked to him that we need to improve to fit into our game model. And we don't have time on Tuesday to improve these things. The game's on Thursday. The game's on Sunday. There's not a runway here. So I think when this whole thing settles down, and hopefully we're in the World Cup, and we have the June window, the September window, I think there will be an opportunity for him where we can really start addressing where we think his deficiencies are, to be the starting center back in our pool. So clearly Greg Berhalter hasn't completely closed the door on John Brooks. Now to John Brooks's credit, he has issued some statements uh, after not being called into the national team. And his last statement was really interesting to me. He said, months ago, I accepted responsibility for my play and the decision that kept me off a roster. Now I'm happy I've regained my form, but unfortunately I wasn't invited to camp. I accept this as the coach's decision, but I won't accept that I can't change this before the final World Cup roster selections. There should be no questions about my desire to play for this team. My plan is to fight as hard as I can to make it back to the USMNT. My American identity is at stake, an identity some have questioned over many years. We Americans have all been down and out at different times, but we always fight back, and I plan to do the same. Now, this statement was incredibly interesting to me. I, I don't know if you guys found it interesting. I found it incredibly interesting. Not the first part where, you know, it sounded like anything any player that's, you know, ever not been picked for a roster might have said. It was that last part. There should be no questions about my desire to play for this team. Why would he be saying that? Why would a player be stating that? We've seen... We've seen other players who have made comment about not being called up. Luca Della Torre in a podcast, Joe Scally talking about not being contacted by the national team. It's unusual for me to hear, there should be no questions about my desire to play for this team. And then he goes on to say, my American identity is at stake. An identity some have questioned over many years. 
this is fascinating stuff. It's, it, it feels like there is a lot more to this story than what's actually going on on the field, which has led a ton of people to speculate over whether or not this is a personal issue between Greg Berhalter and the player or between the player and, and the rest of the players in the locker room. And, and I think that that second point is an interesting one because throughout World Cup qualifying, all we've heard is about how tight-knit this group is and, and how much they care about each other. I mean, if you think about it, you know, a lot of these players haven't been playing together on the national team all that long, but a lot of these players grew up playing together in youth teams. But if you think about how far back Tyler and Christian and uh, Luca Della Torre and Weston McKinney were, were all on the same youth teams, and that same thing can be said for Tim Weah and uh, Serginho Dest and Chris Richards. I mean, these guys came up playing with each other. They go back a long ways, and it's evident in the way that they talk about each other and the way they talk about how tight the group is uh, within the national team. At, at least that's what they say to the media, and I, I really don't see any reason to doubt that. So the question becomes, how does John Brooks fit into that whole situation? Is he an issue in that locker room? Uh, we have no idea. There's, there's no way we could know. The only thing that I, I point to and I, and I think is a really fascinating thing is despite John Brooks being the World Cup veteran, despite him having 45 caps, despite him being uh, the most tenured uh, and, and having the most, I guess, professional career uh, of any player currently in the national team pool, John Brooks has never been captain of the U.S. men's national team, not once. Despite the amount of roster turnover, despite all the new players, John Brooks has never served as captain of this national team. What does that mean? I have no idea, but I find it a really interesting tidbit. It's also worth noting that it's not as if John has never had issues with coaches throughout his career. Uh, there was a well-documented issue between John and one of his coaches over at Hertha Berlin whenever John was still a very young player. And just this season, there were a couple articles that came out in the German publication Build that suggested John Brooks was a problem child over at Wolfsburg. Now, to be fair, Build is a publication that many people in Germany feel isn't worth its weight. Uh, however, it's a, another piece of evidence in this uh, whatever we want to call it case of John Brooks. So that's where we are today. We have a player that possesses a passing ability that is unmatched within this national team, a passing ability that would certainly help out on the field of this national team that struggles to move the ball from the from the back to the front. But we also have a defender that struggles to defend in open spaces and has a tendency to get caught upfield. Uh, and that's been exposed many times while playing for this national team. We also have other defenders that have stepped up in his absence and have proved to be very effective in the same system where John is proved to be ineffective at times. What does this mean for John moving forward? And ultimately, will he be a part of that roster in 2022? I'm, I'm uncertain at this point. I have a feeling that he will be called into the Nations League, as Greg Berhalter said uh, this summer, and we'll have another opportunity to evaluate him there. But I don't see John Brooks getting faster anytime soon. And I'm not sure how you would play this defense any differently uh, that would allow uh, more cover for John Brooks unless there's some type of formation change or something like that uh, something fundamental that would give more cover to John Brooks and not allow him to to be caught upfield so often uh, allowing for these transition moments and for the U.S. to just be caught uh, in one-on-ones with the keeper so let's now turn our attention to our second topic of the show and that is the U.S. men's national team midfield specifically who is going to be that fourth eight, that fourth midfielder for the U.S. men's national team as we head to Qatar? After a hard-fought World Cup qualifying cycle, the U.S. men's national team roster is pretty damn near set, isn't it? Most of the players seem like you, you would bet money that they were going to end up in Qatar. But there are a few roster spots that are still a question mark. 
Uh, one of them happens to be the midfield, specifically the number eight position. Now, throughout World Cup qualifying, uh, Weston McKinney, Eunice Musa, and Luca De La Torre emerged as three really solid options for that midfield spot. But who is that fourth guy? Who is that fourth number eight, that fourth midfielder? That's the question mark. That's a question that has been a struggle for, for fans and Greg Berhalter alike, as we saw throughout World Cup qualifying. Greg often opted to put Kellen Acosta as that fourth eight uh, whenever he either needed a, a depth rotational option or just more defensive stability within that midfield as opposed to some of the other guys who he had available. And I think that speaks volumes about how he felt about some of the guys that he had available to him in that fourth eight position. Now, today, we're going to take a look at some guys who could potentially fill that role. Some guys who, uh, either in the June window or beyond, could potentially find themselves on that 23-man roster heading to Qatar. Now, notice I said 23-man roster. That's important because it's really looking like they're going to move to a 26-man roster or beyond. And if they do that, then maybe Greg can take two additional eights. Maybe it's going to be five eights. We don't know. Uh, so we're making this video assuming that it's going to be 23 players. All that and more on this episode of The Yank Report. What's up? My name is Sam. This is The Yank Report, the show about the U.S. men's national team. If you're into that, hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, support the channel, become a member, all that good stuff. I want to start with the guy who I think is the incumbent in this position. He is Jean-Luc Abusio. Coming into the World Cup qualifying, one of the players that I really wanted to see in Greg Berhalter's roster was 19-year-old Venezia midfielder Jean-Luc Abusio. I just loved his poise on the ball. I loved him as a deep-lying playmaker. I just love his ability to find passes and just... Play a midfield role that we don't see normally on the U.S. men's national team. Now, fast forward throughout World Cup qualifying, Busio eventually gets his spot, and he's called into a few windows as that fourth eight. Now, the issue is whenever Busio eventually did find himself on the field, and he started that away game against Jamaica, he also played in the Panama game, uh, the Panama home game, and the second to last game of World Cup qualifying, it was pretty clear that Busio is just a different type of player than the other midfielders in the group, and he's not used to playing that vertical, all systems go, let's get down the field game that the other midfielders were playing. So in that away game against Jamaica, he was often bypassed in the midfield. Uh, in that game against Panama, whenever everybody was putting in hard tackles, Busio wasn't really putting in hard tackles. He wasn't really, uh, his, his horizontal mobility wasn't the same, wasn't at the same level as the other midfielders around him. And it's pretty clear to me at this point that while I think Jean-Luc Abusio is a good enough player to be in the 23 of the U.S. men's national team heading to Qatar, he just doesn't fit the type of role that Greg Berhalter is going to want him to play uh, in that particular midfield. I think he fits into that John Brooks category where he's a good enough player. He just doesn't really have the, uh, the, the characteristics to fit into the type of midfield that benefits all the other players around him, that benefits Yunus Musa and Tyler Adams and Weston McKinney and Christian Pulisic and Brendan Aronson and all the other players for that matter. Uh, he's just a different type of player, and that's why I don't think he's going to be the guy, even though he's the incumbent, even though he's the guy that Greg's been relying upon in World Cup qualifying, I don't think he's going to be that fourth midfielder whenever Greg Berhalter sets his 23 for Qatar. Now, who is? Timothy Tillman is the 23-year-old midfielder for Gerda Firth. Now, he's an interesting guy here. Gerda Firth, of course, got promoted to the uh, Bundesliga this season. He's a teammate of Julian Green, who's another player that U.S. national team fans kind of wanted earlier in the year or, or the year ago, whatever. Uh, didn't quite work out for him. But but he's kind of he's been a, a regular star for Gerda Firth uh, in their Bundesliga season, even though Gerda Firth has been absolutely tragic this year. And he presents an interesting prospect. 
Whenever I watch him play, you could tell that he's a two-way midfielder, that he's going to play on both sides of the ball. He's not exactly a defensive specialist. He's not exactly an offensive specialist. He's out there to do a job. If you remember, Timothy Tillman, as a youth prospect, was uh, regarded as an attacker. And, and since he's made it to the professional level, he's dropped back into the midfield. Uh, and, and that means that he has some nice ball skills. He can dribble the ball really well. The issues that he has is in his passing game. If you take a look at his passing stats, now granted, these are passing stats weighted against other Bundesliga and, and top five level league players. They're not very good. They're not very good even whenever you compare him to someone like Yunus Musa, who we know is a wonderful uh, player at, at dribbling forward and, and penetrating the defense, but not so much what is passing. So Yunus Musa statistically is a better passer than, than Timothy Tillman, which, which isn't great. But the big knock that I have on Timothy Tillman is whenever I watch him play, even though he more often than not makes a quality play, makes a good play, He's rarely, if ever, spectacular. Now, you may be able to go on YouTube and find like some highlights of a goal of his or a, a, an assist or something like that. But more often than not, he's going to be taking the, the predictable pass, the easy way out of that, uh, of that situation. He's not going to be hitting long through balls or long balls over the top. He's not going to be beating players and going for goal. That's just not who he is as a player. It's, it's more often than not going to be that, that standard, everyday, exactly what you'd expect him to do. That being said, if Greg Verhalter opted to call him in as the fourth midfielder for, say, the June window, I'd be excited to see what he can do in a U.S. men's national team roster. Now, who would do something spectacular on the ball in the final third? Jordi Mihailovic. Jordi Mihailovic is an interesting player because early on in Greg Berhalter's tenure, he brought Jordi on uh, as an exciting young player to see what he could do with the national team. And at that point, he just wasn't up to the level. He just, he just didn't quite have it. He couldn't handle the speed of the game or the physicality of the game. But flash forward a few years, Jordy's emerged as one of the MVP candidates in MLS, just lighting the world on fire for his team, uh, CF Montreal. Is that it's Club de Foot Montreal? Jordy Mihailovic does a lot of things that this national team is missing right now. He can score. He can play that final ball. He's a creative player. He's a, a true number 10. Uh, he's looking to bring other players in and, and do something interesting that, that is unusual on the field, especially for the U.S. men's national team. Uh, while the U.S. does have some really great midfielders, creative, interesting, decisive passing is not really what we're known for at the moment. Jordi Mihailovic would bring that to the group. Now, the cons against Jordi Mihailovic are going to lie entirely on the defensive side of the ball. He doesn't bring much to the table in defense at all. In fact, I've heard a lot of people question whether Jordi Mihailovic even makes sense as an eight in Greg Peralta's system anyway. Does he make more sense as one of the wingers, as one of the inverted tens, as, as we used to call them, one of the, the half-space merchants? Uh, play the position like Tim Weah and Christian Pulisic and uh, Gio Reyna play. Would that make more sense for him? Because if you remember, uh, throughout World Cup qualifying, often we'd see our number eights dropping all the way back into like the left-back role or the right-back role, covering for the fullbacks as the fullbacks get up the field, and largely just not really getting into that final third as much as some of the other players on the field. So in Greg Berhalter's system, does it make sense to have Jordi Mihailovic as an eight? It's an interesting discussion, and, and I'm right there with you if you, if you want to make that point. The last thing that I would say is kind of situationally, where does it make sense to bring in Jordi Mihailovic? Jordi Mihailovic would be an offensive specialist. And if you're thinking about like a game scenario where Jordi would come in, it would be a situation where the U.S. is chasing a goal and you want to bring Jordi in off the bench and maybe provide a spark in the offense. But if that's what you're looking for, 
do you really want to bring in Jordy Mihailovic or would you rather, say, move Christian Pulisic or Gio Reyna into the midfield and bring on Tim Weah or Brendan Aronson as an attacker? Or maybe even move Christian Pulisic as, as a second forward and, and bring on another wing player. That seems to make a lot more sense strategically uh, as to how to inject offense into that midfield. So in that sense, if Jordi Mihailovic is, is going to be a defensive liability and is going to be an offensive specialist, is he good enough at offense in order to force Greg's hand, in order to say he's bet so good at offense that we should not move around Christian Pulisic or Gio Reyna or bring in a second forward or anything like that. We should put in uh, Jordi Mihailovic and he'll, he'll get the job done for us. I'm not sold on that. I don't know if that's what Greg would do. I don't know if it's what I would do. Honestly, I don't know if it's what you would do either. I, I feel like I'm a lot more comfortable in saying that it makes a lot more sense to bring one of those other attacking players into the midfield and, and not take off a Wes McKinney or a Eunice Musa or, or Luca De La Torre, whoever that might be. It just It's looking at this team, while I think Jordi Mihaljevic is every bit good enough to play on this national team right now, I just don't see where the situation is. Uh, arises for him. So after all that, who do I think actually does make a lot of sense in the midfield? It's the guy who I've been excited about for a long time, and I think he's finally in a position in his career where he's able to make that leap to the national team, and that is FC Dallas midfielder Paxton Pomacall. Now, if you're weighing out pros and cons for why Paxton Pomacall makes sense in the U.S. men's national team, I think the pros carry a lot of weight. I mean, Paxton Pomacall is a relentless presser. And he's a relentless tackler in the midfield. And if you look at the, the player profiles of guys like Weston McKinney, Eunice Musa, look at De La Torre, he has a lot of that verticality. He gets the ball in, in the defensive third and looks to push forward. He looks to play balls up the field. He looks to get going. And whenever the ball turns over and he's playing defense, he is an absolute mauler in the midfield. He is all over the place. And, and he fits right into what Greg's trying to do. And it makes a ton of sense that Paxton Pomacall would fit in very nicely in Greg Berhalter's system because Greg Berhalter's system is the same exact system that Greg's former assistant coach, Nico Estevez, and now current FC Dallas coach, has instituted at FC Dallas and allowed Paxton Pomacall to absolutely thrive this season. So why hasn't Paxton been called in yet? Well, you know as well as I do what, what the big weakness for Paxton Pomacall is, and that is staying on the field. He's dealt with a ton of injuries uh, ever since he was, I mean, forever with Paxton Pomacall. He's missed a ton of games. So the question marks about reliability is something that I certainly understand. But whenever I look at Paxton Pomacall, I mean, his long balls are something that we don't see from a lot of the midfielders on the U.S. men's national team. I think his passing is pretty good in the midfield. I think his ability to get vertical, to penetrate, to do what Luca De La Torre and, and Yunus Musa do and dribble at defenders. Uh, his, his ability to just be absolutely relentless in the press and create a lot of turnovers and get right back up the field makes a lot of sense in what Greg Berhalter is trying to do within this midfield. So for my money, I think Paxton Pomacall is the guy. I think he offers you a lot in this particular situation. Now, there is a big monkey wrench that could be thrown into the whole system that could absolutely upset the apple cart and turn everything on its head. And that's that Greg Berhalter has hinted at potentially looking at different formations or maybe a, a, a different look for the U.S. men's national team that they could possibly employ uh, in the World Cup. And if, if he is, if he is looking for that second look, maybe he wants that fourth midfielder position to be one that's a little bit more flexible that maybe works in a different system, maybe works in a more possessive system, uh, maybe something like that. And if that's the case, maybe it's Jean-Luc Abusio's attributes that work a lot better for that second system. Maybe it's Jordi Mihailovic's attributes that work a lot better in that second system. 
then say Pax and Pomacall, who is almost a carbon copy of what we already have uh, as far as the midfielders in the in this group. That's something that's going to be interesting to see moving forward. If you watch the infamous or if you listen to the infamous Bobby Warshaw, Greg Berhalter podcast, he talked about uh, how important it is to have a second look in the World Cup and how they came out in a different formation in 2002 whenever he was playing and it made a huge impact uh, on the on the game. And, and, and that's something that he wants to employ in this team. We'll see if he's able to install that. We'll see exactly what that is and, and what kind of players he's looking for to fit in those roles. But if he's looking to do a lot more of what we saw throughout World Cup qualifying, for my money, is passing Palma call. Give him the call. Let's go. Let's get another FC Dallas player on the field, and let's see what he can do. So that's my take on who should be Greg Berhalter's fourth number eight heading into the World Cup. I'm curious to know what yours is. Do you rate passing Palma call as highly as I do? I know that I've been a big fan of his for a long time, so maybe I'm a little biased towards him. Let me know what you think. Get at me in the YouTube comment section. Get at me on Twitter. I am at Report Yank. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. I appreciate it. Get out there and rate and review and do all those good things for podcasts. My name is Sam, and this is the Yank Report brought to you by Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.